both the left and the right are political Christianity. You get, you know, ideological, um, ideological Christianity rather than relational Christianity that's biblically grounded. And and that's what Edwards, one of the things Edwards, I think, offers a, a guide to. I mean, he doesn't have all the answers, but it's it's a good reminder that this is this is where the core the core should be and this is this is what a Christian and a Christian community should look like. to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today in our show, we're having another one of our... Deep Conversations. One of my favorite passages is from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks... That is a great segue into the life and thought of Jonathan Edwards, the greatest American theologian. Our times are confusing, but every so often we need to hear from someone outside of our own time who can give us a God's eye view of who we are and how we are to order our lives to follow him. That's why reading or delving into the thought of Jonathan Edwards is so important for our time. Not only was he a theologian, but he was a pastor and he was a revivalist really in touch with the Spirit of God, and helping really to fan into flame the first great awakening, delivering perhaps what is known as the greatest American sermon ever delivered, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Edwards is a monumental theologian. He requires a monumental historian to help us understand his thought and its significance for our day. That's why we have, as today's guest, Dr. George Marsden. George is Emeritus Professor of History at Notre Dame and is one of the most influential historians of our time. He's an expert on the intersection of Christianity and North American culture, specifically American evangelicalism. He is known for his biography on Jonathan Edwards entitled Jonathan Edwards A Life, which won him a bunch of different prizes. I mean, he has authored other books, including The Soul of the American University, Religion and American Culture, and the one that I got to know him through, Fundamentalism and American Culture. He's also written biographies on C.S. Lewis. I mean, this is a guy that has published widely and also has a deep heart for God himself. So he's not just a historian. He's a man who loves Jesus. And I wanted to talk to him about his newest book, on Jonathan Edwards entitled An Infinite Fountain of Light, Jonathan Edwards for the 21st Century. Listen in as this distinguished historian takes us on a journey into what America's greatest theologian, Jonathan Edwards, has to say to us and Christ Church today. Happy listening. George Marsden, welcome to Apollos Watered. Thank you. My pleasure. It's a real joy to have you here today, but before we get into our conversation, are you ready for the Fast Five? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're going to do just fine. If you could bring back one thing from when you were a kid, what would it be and why? Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I guess my grandmother, and because she was just a great person we lived with, yeah. 
Here's the second question. What's the one non-biblical book that has influenced you the most and why? The most? Uh, um, I'm sorry. I, I'm having trouble thinking, <laughs> thinking of uh, one, one book uh, that I give that. What's a few? Give me a couple of them that well, come to mind. I, um, we're talking about Jonathan Edwards today. His Religious Affections is is really an important book. Here's the third question. What's your favorite period of history to study and why? I think I'm most interested in 20th century, 21st century things because as a historian, I see my role as to try to help understand what's going on today in terms of the historical factors that have, have shaped it, and particularly a lot of evangelical Christianity sees itself as shaped by the Bible alone, but in fact, it's shaped by all sorts of cultural assumptions. So my job is to sort that out and try to sort out the, the gold from the dross. What is the one historical figure outside of the scripture, out of all the figures in scripture, that you would love to grab a cup of coffee with and why? Probably St. Augustine. I see him as the sort of the central theologian that uh, that shaped things. I, I guess if I answer your question, if you're going to have a cup of coffee or other beverage, I think C.S. Lewis would, mm. would be more fun than just about anyone else you could you could <laughs> think of. And that, you know, that, spend an hour with C.S. Lewis would be would be amazing. Whereas you know, in Augustine, it would take a while to figure out. Our, yeah. our differences in, in how to communicate. But uh, yeah, I did a, a little book on um, about mere Christianity, and, and I just loved reading everything that, that Lewis had, has written. So how about this one? This is the last question. What's the one historical figure you want Christians to learn more about today, and why? Well, today, uh, since we're doing this interview, Jonathan Edwards would be a good, <laughs> a good candidate. And... Uh, and I think he has some wonderful things to say to all of us. And not everything he says is wonderful, but some of the things really are. And I think any Christian can learn from his insights. And it happens to be someone that I've learned a lot from. And, and so I've tried to share those uh, those insights from Edwards to, to see what, what really translates well for Christians today. And uh, as C.S. Lewis has said, Every theologian needs a translator, and I mm. see myself as a translator of Edwards. So I'm writing Edwards for the 21st century in order to say, here's what you can find here in this person that might seem uh, far away and obscure and sometimes off-putting. Let's get a little bit of your bio. Where'd you grow up? How'd you come to know Jesus? And what led you to become a historian? And I know I'm asking you to summarize yeah. <laughs> several decades right there in just a few moments, which is hard for a historian to do. But no, that's I, not I believe too you hard, can do actually. it. Uh, I grew up in, in Middletown, Pennsylvania, which is near Harrisburg. My father was a had been the pastor there, and then he became a, an executive. He was a mission when I was young, very young, he was a mission secretary for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And so I grew up in an Orthodox Presbyterian uh, situation. I also grew up in a home that was very old. It was built in the, in the 19th century and had been a family home for many generations. So I was surrounded by history, but the, the history 
that I knew best was the history that had shaped the Orthodox Presbyterians leaving uh, the main Presbyterian church. And so that was part of my atmosphere when I was growing up. And I was, we had a Christian school and that was emphasized as constantly uh, an issue in sermons. So I was intrigued by that. I was gripped by it. I had essential faith or commitment as I was growing up, but I also had a lot of questions. And I went to a secular college, Haverford College in Pennsylvania, wonderful place. And so I was confronted by the best of contemporary learning. And and then the big question in my life was, how do you put these two things together? Here is classic Christianity that had been central in Western culture for a long time, central in American culture for up to 100 years ago. And then now it's considered to be quaint, out of date, and and there's this whole other, uh, you know, at that time I thought very positive uh, sort of humanist outlook. And how do I fit those two things together? So that helped shape in my faith journey. I, I went to, to Westminster Seminary for a year to try to work that out. And that was very helpful. I learned from uh, Cornelius Van Til and uh, Edmund Clowney and a number of other wonderful professors there. And that gave me a grounding to, for a deeper faith. Then I went on to graduate school because I was on this quest to say, how does the culture and the faith, how do they interact with each other? And how does the faith be shaped by the culture? What's essential? and what's peripheral. In the course of that, I, I ran into reading Jonathan Edwards, who was actually uh, revered in uh, main American history at that, that time as sort of the greatest early American thinker. And I, you know, and I thought, wow, this stuff is great in, in kind of illuminating the Reformed tradition that I was part of. So that became one of my anchors in my faith commitment. But my professional work was still going, trying to understand where did the way the church is today, today then being in the 1960s, how did it get that way? At that time, conservative churches were still seen to be as fundamentalist and outdated by most people in the culture. So I took on the task of how do you understand where fundamentalism came from. What is it? How did it get shaped? What's it doing now? How has it gotten changed since then? I wrote about fundamentalism and I wrote about the neo-evangelical movement and at Fuller Theological Seminary. And that was a major agenda, trying to understand that tradition. And then I went on to try to understand the other culture that I was part of, the academic culture. And where does Christianity fit in academic culture? And I I wrote about uh, a book called The Soul of the American University, how Christianity interacted with university education in America, and also a book called Outrageous Idea of Christian Scholarship said Christian scholarship isn't that outrageous. It's just it can be as academically uh, solid as any other kind of scholarship and it ought to be welcomed into the academy rather than uh, simply being uh, suspect. So those are the main 
things I've, I've thought about. And then I, after that, I got into Jonathan Edwards about him. And as I mentioned, I uh, did a book on C.S. Lewis. So it's it's all in, in along that trajectory of trying to see what are the eternal truths that you can find in a very transitory cultural situation. And we are very limited sorts of people. So we have to, to be very careful what we what we take as absolute, nonetheless, uh, there's enough there to make a real a real faith commitment. Let's then move into your book, because you're talking about Edwards. We have George Marsden, An Infinite Fountain of Light, Jonathan Edwards for the 21st Century. What made you want to write this book? You've written on Edwards in the past, but what, when, what made you write this book specifically? Actually, I ended up writing three books on Edwards. I, uh, my friend Mark Knoll had asked me to uh, write a biography for a series of biographies for Erdman's. I said I'd do that. And then uh, a little later, another friend, Harry Stout at Yale, uh, asked me, he said, we need someone to write a big biography of Edwards for his uh, the 300th anniversary of his birth, and that would have been 2003. This was in the 90s. And so I that was too good a thing to pass up. So I said, okay, I'll do that. And, but I, I'm committed to write for Erdman's too, so I have to write a shorter biography for them. So I wrote the big biography, and I wrote a shorter biography. And then I was asked, after the big biography came out, I was asked to give a series of lectures, the Stone Lectures at Princeton Theological Seminary. And so I lectured on Jonathan Edwards for the 21st century. And that was, uh, what, 17 years ago. And since then, I've taken parts of those lectures and given them various places. So a few years ago, I decided, well, I should put this together in a finished form. So I revised it pretty drastically, but it's still essentially some of the ideas that I, I developed then of saying, on the one hand, here's a biography. On the other hand, here's what, uh, what you can take away from it and and what the things I think are really, are really uh, important. Yeah, so, so that's that's where the book came from. You start off the book talking about Edwards and its importance of, first of all, understanding a history and studying history. But one of the things that you take pain to talk about is the fact that it's very difficult with how we in the modern world take our standards of today and then export those back on Ethers' time. Why is it so important to see Edwards in his own time? The first thing you need to do when you're going studying people in another era is to think, what did they take for granted? And how is that different than things we take for granted? And, and for instance, we take for granted some sort of principle of equality, that equal opportunity and so forth. And, and that's applied in all sorts of different and sometimes contentious ways. But it's an ideal that we all hold to. Whereas in most of the history of the world, people have simply assumed that human society is hierarchical. There are some people who are in charge and other people who are subordinate and that that was the way God made things. And so Someone like Edwards just automatically sees the world as hierarchical so that 
for instance, in marriages, men should be uh, in charge and women are subordinate and men go to college and get that kind of education. Women can be educated, but not in formal ways. So there's some essential, well, just, just say, should women get educated? That's something today everyone thinks, of course they should. Whereas for him, that was not an obvious, uh, it was rarely a matter of, of much dispute. I mean, I'm sure some women were, were disputing, but pretty rarely. So it's just a different world. And you have to take that into account and live with it and not say, well, if this person is wrong about that, I can't listen to someone who who had that kind of view of hierarchy. You can't, I mean, the, the general rule, which I, I mentioned in the book is, you can't say, I can't learn from someone who is wrong about X, Y, or Z, you know, that might be the greatest thinker on all sorts of other things, uh, just because they're wrong on one thing, that doesn't mean they can't be brilliantly right on on something else. And if the rule was, you had to be right about everything, then no one could learn from us either, because we, you know, we're flawed too, and we have our blind spots. And and people in uh, any other future generations will probably think back. Boy, the twenty first century people were sure stupid about this. So, anyways, the idea is. You don't dismiss someone just because they're wrong about something or other. You wrote, and taking that thought into consideration, you wrote this. In studying the Christian past, I have found Jonathan Edwards especially helpful both in challenging assumptions of our own age and in offering invigorating guidance in my own quest to follow Christ. What are some of the assumptions of our day that Edwards helps us to see? Yes, well, um, I developed that as a uh, one of the central themes in the book. And I get at that by comparing the legacy of Jonathan Edwards to that of Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin was born two years after Edwards in New England in a Calvinist family, very similar background. But Benjamin Franklin went in the direction of the Enlightenment at that time of more secular kinds of ideas of a, a broader kind of, uh, he was, he believed there had to be a providence of some sort of God, but not following the Bible particularly. And Franklin became one of the progenitors of the American way of life, the self-made man, uh, at that time, self-made person, as we would say, a champion of technology. Yeah, he was a great practical science shaping the American enterprise and, and shaping the early government uh, and Declaration of Independence. Uh, Franklin helped shape the modern world. And the modern world is, uh, our underlying assumptions tend to be that essentially the real world is the material world. And technology increases that kind of sensibility because if we want to solve a problem, there's a technological way to get it done. You just look up on your phone or your computer, and if you can get through on it, uh, you can figure out you can figure out most anything. But it's a, a technical a technical issue, and so 
lots of people have observed. We, we have a very materialistic kind of world or uh, what Jacques Alou called a technological society uh, mm-hmm. where we, we tend to think of things in, ter- in terms of technique. And so we uh, you know, look at people as how can we use these people to shape our enterprise and uh, it, it becomes a matter of calculation. Edwards, on the other hand, starts with and continues with God as the creator and the sustainer of reality, that the real world is a world that was created by the creative love of God. And it's essential if God sustains the world. So uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. The universe is God's language. Creation is not something that simply happened back the, way back when, and then God wound it up and let it go. Creation is an ongoing kind of thing. Your language is something that's continuing. So there's an essential living character to reality. It's related somehow to God's sustaining it. And God is in sometimes very mysterious ways revealing his love. And the central uh, revelation is the love of God in Christ, that the goodness of the universe is obscured by suffering. But this is a suffering God. This is a God who knows our suffering, knows our, is acquainted with sorrow and grief. And that's what you should see in the reality around you. That's your, uh, should be part of your consciousness uh, when you look out at the, the beauty of uh, trees around you or whatever you see, Edward saw it as these are glimpses of uh, the divine light, of the beauty of God that you can see. You, you cultivate a, a kind of consciousness of Christ being uh, part of reality. And, and that, I, th- I think, you know, it's a difficult kind of sensibility, but it's a very helpful sensibility to counter... Uh, the idea that everything's technological, everything in the material world is the real world, and to think of oneself as in this uh, universe where God is uh, not just a sort of an abstract principle, not someone who just worked long ago and did you know, creation and then revealed Christ, but this is an ongoing kind of enterprise that God is there. And so... I find Edwards helpful in trying to to cultivate that sensibility. I, now, if I, I don't, I know I don't always succeed in that, but but that's uh, that to me is a wonderful uh, vision to, to to try to to have, and you can you know is something that can be uh, renewed from day to day. You write about creation, and you've referred to that, but you also refer to something that I think many Christians have a hard time seeing and understanding. When you talk about the beauty of God and his response to the beauty of God, it would just awaking this idea of transcendence. Can you tell us a little bit about how he responded when he saw the beauty of God? You actually say that he responded to the beauty of God with singing. Oh, yeah. Which I, which yeah. I thought was very interesting. I, I'd never thought of that before. And then you actually kind of develop a little bit of a case for how they understood worship in the mid 18th century and how they didn't have oftentimes music, but it was very unusual for churches to actually sing harmonies. 
Yeah. So can you describe a little bit to us? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, first of all, the, the basic thing is that uh, Edward saw this response to God and he'd go out in the fields and contemplate God and Christ and, and look for sort of signs of what he called signs. He kept a notebook of signs of divine things. But then one kind of response would be just to be singing because in classic Christianity, the creation of the world is is often represented as uh, like a symphony, the harmonies of God's goodness that, that can be seen uh, in reality if we have the eyes to, to see it. Anyway, so and Edwards loved singing. He and his wife uh, sang together. And in New England churches, the singing had been dreadful originally because the Puritans were very strict on the idea of the Bible alone. If the Bible didn't prescribe something, they didn't think this should happen. So they sang only the Psalms, and they didn't have musical instruments. For the first hundred years of this Puritan settlements in New England, they just had someone, would, a leader would start the song, and then people would just sort of sing away uh, without any any tunefulness. And, and apparently it was, it was really awful. Uh, anyway, Edwards was part of a movement to at least introduce four-part harmony. They still didn't have musical instruments, but they had four-part harmony. And if you've ever been to a Church of Christ uh, yeah. gathering, they don't have musical instruments, but they have wonderful singing with the harmonies that a cappella singing can have. So Edwards promoted that in his, in, in his congregation as a way of of getting some spiritual intensity into the singing uh, in the worship. And of course, uh, you know, since then we've we've run with that sometimes well and sometimes not so well. But anyway, his uh, music was very important to him because he saw that as a way of seeing the harmonies of goodness, of proper relationship. Proper love is proper relationships, and proper music is the right relationship. He also thought, he observes that in heaven, the, the music will be way better than anything we can imagine because we're limited by, he said, the gross harmonies, or the, the harmonies limited to our gross air, that, that there's only a certain number of notes that we can do, whereas if you have an infinite number of notes, you can have one infinite kinds of music. It's an interesting thought, but it does reflect how music and harmonies is a way of thinking about what are proper love relationships. How should that work? I particularly really enjoyed that part. I come from a singing background. So this idea and being in, having been in churches of Christ where they don't have that, and but also seeing some of those services that you said, there's some beautiful four-part harmonies, but there's also some disasters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You you take time to introduce a lot of these contemporaries. As you've already alluded to, you have Benjamin Franklin, who's the really ultimate pragmatist, the ultimate self-made man, the inventor. Then you you also, though, bring in Bach, you bring in the musical part that he would have been somewhat, I think, familiar with Bach's music at, in some way, shape or form. You also bring in George Whitfield. What was your point of bringing in George Whitfield into the conversation? Whitfield is... He's another self-made man, uh, contemporary 
of younger contemporary of Edwards and Franklin. And uh, Whitfield is really the inventor of modern evangelicalism that uh, developing a, a revival uh, conversionist version of Christianity. He'd preach in any church that would let him preach. If they didn't let him preach, he'd preach out in the fields. And, and it turned out preaching in the fields was even more popular. So he'd sometimes have uh, audiences of many thousand people that would gather to hear him preach. But he was the first um, celebrity evangelist. And he was very traditional Orthodox Reformed in his in his theology. But his, his methodology invited uh, what's become characteristic of a lot of evangelicalism that the star, the, the, the celebrity, the, the, you know, the person who can uh, draw a big crowd tends to, to shape the movement. And uh, not all of them are as orthodox as, as Whitfield. So you get eventually a kind of uh, theological well, I, I, I think anarchy is not too strong a word to say that, that that's a lot of good and a lot of mixed up with a lot of other things. But the, the marvelous thing is 300 years later, there's still a recognizable evangelical message that gets through. The core message survives, but it's a market-driven kind of religion. And uh, the people who you know find out how to make churches grow better, have to have more popular music, uh, more popular uh, reaching, more popular promises of what people are going to get out of it. That's all mixed in with the gospel message. I see Whitfield as a progenitor of that. And then that's in contrast to Edwards, who was very consciously trying to, to keep the, the message anchored in the church and in in the best thinking, sort of the, as C.S. Lewis would say, the, the Christian truths that have survived through the ages can be found by looking at the best theologians. So Edwards is, is seeing the job of the pastor as to uh, be trained well and then to, to present that well. And he was all for the revival, but with boundaries. And Whitfield tended to play fast and loose with the with the boundaries, which had uh, was wonderful in some ways. Uh, American religion particularly uh, has been very strong at the grassroots, and that's because of the strength of the evangelical tradition that if you have a, a popular sort of religion, it, it can take deep root. But it's also uh, populist in the sense that uh, sometimes it picks up ideas and that are very popular, but not particularly Christian, and and weds them to, uh, to the Christian tradition. So I see Whitfield as progenitor of the characteristic American style of religion, and I think Edwards is helpful in saying, slow down and, and, and let's think about uh, where the real center of this ought to be and then not get carried away by, um, by popular fans. How does Edwards act as a clarifier in helping us to really identify the authentic nature of Christianity as we observe what's going on in our in our culture today? Yeah, uh, he, he doesn't answer all the questions. I mean, he's, he's but he does 
address the question that was raised already in, in the Great Awakening when Whitfield had come through, and he was a great supporter of Whitfield. Uh, but then there are other evangelists who were imitators who were already uh, way off, off the track. And he saw uh, a lot of people, some of his own congregation, who, whom he thought had been converted and then 10 years later, obviously hadn't happened. And, you know, but they, you know, they were professing Christians and, and uh, communicant members. And so he, in the wake of the revivals, he asked, what are the signs of authentic Christianity that we can look for, particularly in ourselves, but also in others? And, and he writes a, a book on fetus and religious affections or religious loves. And the signs of true Christianity are, where are your loves oriented? And I think of it as if you have this central vision of Christ, the revelation of Christ at the center of reality, that's what creation is, what God created and to reveal the love of, of Christ, then that ought to be a kind of like a planet that holds your other loves, your lesser loves in, or like the sun that holds your, the, the planets of your lesser loves in their right right ordering of loves, which comes from Augustine. What does it look like if a Christian's loves are rightly ordered? So he starts with love to God and uh, expounds on uh, what that in, involves. And then he gets to what are the qualities of a Christian person who's truly loving and uh, humility. He, he quotes Augustine and John Calvin saying, uh, what are the essential traits of Christianity. He says, humility, humility, humility. It's like the builders, location, location, location. Mm -hmm. uh, humility, humility, humility. That's, that should be one of our, our, our central uh, traits. And, and one that I found particularly uh, intriguing in light of a lot of discussion today is he, he emphasizes that the true Christian should have a, a lamb-like, dove-like character like like Jesus. And rather than emphasize, he, he says, that some Christians think that you need to be manly, warlike, but they're really mistaken in, in, in sort of translating that, those kinds of fierce qualities into the Christian character and, and what you should be looking for in the Christian character are childlike characteristics. And, you know, except, you know if you, you have to be like a little child to to follow Christ, and Christ is gentle and, and mild, and, and we lose sight of that uh, all too easily. And then Edwards goes on with other uh, traits, ends up, the longest part of his treatise is charity. Look for acts of charity. What what are people doing for for other people? And that that's really the best the best sign. How how much of your Christianity is self-serving and how much is really serving others. And it can be very a challenging thing to keep thinking about how much of what you're doing is to, uh, to make yourself secure and comfortable. And, and are you really uh, reflecting the love of Christ and, and, and sacrificial love of Christ? That's a great challenge and, and a you know, very difficult kind of thing. But I think that's, Edwards is right. That's the kind of thing to look for. And, that's the sort of thing that can give depth to anyone's Christianity. I, I don't have a good idea of how to solve the problems of 
all the problems of the church today, but those are good qualities. And you mentioned uh, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Yeah, yeah, that, Deity, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people see Christianity as just sort of therapeutic. What, what do I get out of it? And Edwards is saying it needs to be oriented toward these loves, first the love to God and then this rightly ordered secondary loves and get them in the right Great relationships, and then then there'll be beauty in your own your own Christianity. And and I think one goal for any local congregation is to say people are drawn to Christianity often not by particular teachings or by arguments, but they say, "Boy, look at those people! There's something they're doing that's that's just right." And I'd like to be I'd like to be part of a, a community like that. That's much more important than do you teach this doctrine or, or, or this particular doctrine, uh, but to develop a community that's known as, as a loving community. And that's the way people are very often convinced convinced of things. I mean, that's that's the way you know, we try to witness. So you try to be a, a winsome community. I think Sometimes that gets lost, particularly in in some of the, you know, on both the left and the right, political Christianity. You get, you know, ideological, uh, ideological Christianity rather than, um, what shall I say, relational Christianity that's biblically grounded, and and that's what Edwards. One of the things Edwards, I think, offers a, a guide to. I mean, he doesn't have all the answers, but it's. It's it's a good reminder that this is this is where the core the core should be, and this is this is what a Christian and a Christian community should look like. We talk about Edwards, and Edwards is this is kind of an interesting figure to speak to our current historical moment. As you've been serving for many many decades, you are in your mid eighties. Is that right? Mid eighties, mid eighties. What are the changes that you've seen over time in how we express our evangelical faith that you think Edwards really speaks to? Yeah, when I was growing up in in the 1950s, evangelicalism was sort of two things. One was Billy Graham and people who, who liked Billy Graham. And for a long time, that I thought, think was a, a good definition of an evangelical, someone who likes Billy Graham. Then there were also fundamentalists who were in various ways more conservative and more separatist who were often suspicious of, of Billy Graham. It sort of was, it was a fundamentalist wing and the evangelical broader wing. And that distinction is, has uh, fallen apart to some extent, partly because in the 20th century, people have stopped calling themselves fundamentalists ever since 9-11 and the use of it for Islamic, not the best term, but that's what people said, Islamic fundamentalists, Christian fundamentalists have stopped using the term. So it's a little harder to identify, but it's also what's happened is uh, a lot of the political religion has become intermixed with the with various Christian traditions and churches become identified with where they stand on the political issues uh, in a way that um, just wasn't 
nearly as prominent um, 60 years ago that uh, churches, people in churches had, you know, largely conservative political views, but they weren't seen as a, an arm of, of anybody's politics, either on the left or, or the right. And I think that creates a, a real tension and that cuts across all the religious traditions that you can you know, find it among Catholics or Protestants or any subgroup of Protestants that, that you look at there. Uh, they're not only divided from uh, other denominations, but they're divided often among themselves. And, and often it's uh, the other political divisions that become more important. So I think one thing that Edwards is helpful for is to, to get away from that and, and to look for the more perennial Christian virtues. And, and that's why I, in the book, I invoke uh, C.S. Lewis often to, to you know, try to get uh, mere Christianity that you know, Edwards fleshes out some depth in what that means. But the idea that you're, you're looking for the essence of the Christian tradition and don't get caught up in, in, in some sort of uh, sub-movement that, that can look like you're doing the right thing, but then you're actually subverting the essence or alienating a lot of people you shouldn't be alienating. As we look forward, what do you see as the biggest challenges for Christianity moving forward in the next 50 or even century? One thing that um, I tend to do, and I think a lot of people tend to do, is you, you think of Christianity in terms of, and particularly evangelicalism, in terms of its American manifestations. If you switch your basic orientation to world Christianity, then you have a, a a very different picture, one that I'm not especially expert on, but but the center of gravity moves away from the Western world, from the former Christendom, to places where Christianity has been growing, <clears throat> of all sorts, have been growing amazingly. You know, that's what's happened in the last 70 years. That's what's happened, that um, in 1950, World Christianity was, you know, there, you know, were missions that established beachheads, maybe, but and then it's just taken off in a way that I don't think anyone predicted. So I, I expect, I don't, in the next generation, one of the big challenges is to say, how does Christianity in the Western world relate to Christianity in the non-Western world, majority world? Yeah, and I know you do a lot of thinking about that, and you probably know more about that than I do, but uh, that, that seems to me to be a source of, of strength to say, this is not a, you know, you look at the American situation, say, church membership's declining and the like, but if you look at the world Christianity, it's, uh, all, overall, it's, Going up. it's flourishing. So uh, how do we relate to that, and what should that teach us? And, and that's um, for the next generation of historians to figure out. Uh, on my pay grade. <laughs> what role do you see Western Christianity playing, if any, as Christianity continues to move forward and it continues to expand around the world? Western Christianity has uh, very rich resources to draw on from the sort of the grand Christian tradition. And so you need school, you need like theological education. And I think that can be, uh, you know, the West can 
can help that in in that because they have a long tradition of that. And I, and I know in I mean in in Edward's studies, the Yale Center for um, Jonathan Edwards Center puts all the works of Jonathan Edwards online, and they have a, there, there are Jonathan Edwards centers around the world. There's a dozen centers, I think, and and they get all sorts of hit on you know people looking you know using Edwards around the world, and and so that's. And it's uh, taking, and that's probably true of lots of other great theologians. Uh, uh, the West does have that to, to offer as part of what the universal church should be like and, and to keep it from being simply wildfire kind of growth. You've also, as we've, we've talked a lot about Edwards, but you've also alluded to C.S. Lewis playing a role in how the Christian faith is I mean, moving forward in this mere Christian idea, what do you think Lewis has to say to us at this cultural moment? Well, I think that the, the advantage of Lewis is because it's mere Christianity, it's can appeal to people in almost any Christian tradition. That's, and that's why Lewis's works have been so um, influential. And I think Lewis can bring us together well, like I have friends who, who work in Christian study centers at universities. If you say we represent mere Christianity, that's going to to be a, a opening to bring people together rather than to divide them. Where if you say we we stand for the you know legitimate Reformed, Super Baptist, Methodist group, then then people don't know what. You, you divide if you get too much into into the particulars of your your own little insights into 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 things. So mere Christianity is, it seems to me, a, a, a real goal to to work on cultivating and to say, you know, those people differ from us in, in some ways, but on the basics of mere Christianity, we can you know, we can join with them and work with them, and and uh, I think that. You know, outsiders will find that more attractive as well. What's a what's a good water bottle for our people as we wrap up our time together today? What's a good water bottle for our our audience, our listeners out there, for them to sip on to be spiritually nourished by this week? Well, is it to get back to the core of of Edwards that the idea that the very reason God created the universe is to reveal the love of Christ. And I've put it as the universe is a product of the Big Bang of God's love. If you think of that as at the center of all reality and in some way radiating in reality, and even though it's obscured by sin and darkness and all sorts of other things that for whatever reasons God has permitted, nonetheless, the revelation of Christ who suffered to share our pains and to, and to forgive our sins and uh, bring salvation, that's what reality is is about, and that, that can be found in reality. You can see it if you step outside and, and, and look at the beauty around you. You can have that, you can cultivate that sensibility and the sensibility of Seeing the beauty of 
the love of another person. Edwards puts it in terms of uh, when you see a, a, a beautiful person and you fall in love, you can't help it. Mm. And and if you get a glimpse of the, the love of God, the beauty of God, you can't help it. That that that's um, you know that's a way of explaining the sovereignty of God. How God's sovereignty relates to my free will. Uh, when you fall in love, it's all you, but you can't help it. And and you appreciate the love of another person. That you respond to the love of another person. That's what Christianity is essentially about. It's a personal kind of thing. We have a personal universe rather than an impersonal universe. That is a marvelous thought to end our time on today. I want to thank you for writing the book and all of the books that you've written. They have been such a treasure for Christians for the last I mean, decades that are going to nourish many for years to come. I want to thank you specifically for writing this book on Edwards for us today. And I also want to thank you for coming on Apollos Watered. Okay, my pleasure. And it's been fun. Thank you. So many wise words. Both Edwards and Lewis, though dead, still speak to us today to help us see things clearly. It is hard to see through the headlines to get our footing when there is some new scandal, trend, or headline that takes up what little brain space we have left. Nevertheless, I'm grateful for the clarity that men such as Marsden bring as they bring us Jonathan Edwards and C.S. Lewis. It reminds me that there is something more tangible than the crisis of the moment, that God is sovereign over our time, that he's great, and that he seeks a loving relationship with us. So beyond what we see promoted by so many of our theologically allergic churches of today, to be God-centered, God-saturated, enthralled by his love, and then overflowing in love to make that love known to others is just what our world needs. I would encourage you to check out Marsden's book, An Infinite Fountain of Light, or simply go to any of Edwards's works because they provide a rich fountain for you to drink from. They're not easy reads, but they are God-saturated reads. That's it for today's conversation. Be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, and get ready for next week's episode as I chat with Michael Graham, author of The Great Dechurching. It's going to be a conversation that you do not want to miss. I want to thank our Apollos Watered team for watering the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. And I'm on a roll.